welcome to The Pain Cave. My name is Jay Friedman. I am your host, and I am very excited to be joined today by one of the top 24-hour runners in the history of the United States and one of the top 24-hour and 100-mile runners in the world today. He is an ambassador for Rabbit, Squirrel's Nut Butter, Spring Energy, and XO Skin, among others. Please welcome Jake Jackson to The Pain Cave. Hey, Jay. How's it going? Great to be here. It's going really well. I'm psyched to have you on. You know, it's going as, as well as can be in the midst of uh, everything that's, that's you know, de- that we're dealing with in, in America and the world today. Uh, but yeah. um, how's stuff in your neck of the woods? You guys uh, safe weather-wise and everything? You're on vacation right now, right? Yeah, I was, uh, you know, we were supposed to be going out to Havelina this weekend. My wife was scheduled to race that, but with the corona and them changing the atmosphere i guess you could say for the race you know it's just not going to be the same thing so i had this week planned to go out there and crew and pace her for that so that that's not going to happen so it's kind of uh turned into me trying to get in as many miles as i can to prepare for my own race in a couple weeks so yeah we're definitely going to talk about that um pretty soon but uh, yeah, before we uh, get into what's going on nowadays, I wanted to go back and, and talk to you a little bit about your background in the sport and everything else. The reason I wanted to have you on is, is just I, I think you're, uh, you're one of the top runners in the country uh, in, in your discipline. And, and it, it's your, I think, a name that isn't familiar to even a lot of uh, close observers of our sport. And, uh, you know, even me who, you know, I, I know you a little bit through uh, the Orange Mud thing and... and um, just from following you for a little while, I, I still feel like I don't know that much about you. So I, I think it'll be a nice opportunity to, to introduce yourself to a few uh, people out there. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the sport today and uh, a little bit of your background? Yeah, so I guess uh, it started about eight or nine years ago. Um, my wife and I were, we had just had our, our third kid, our daughter, and we were both, you know, very much overweight and out of shape got gym memberships, um, wasn't ever really into lifting weights as much and hopped on the treadmill one day and it kind of took off from there. I I just really enjoyed running and, uh, lost about 30 pounds over that year of just training. And, you know, I, I had the typical progression, 10 K half marathon marathons, uh, started to get a little bit faster, had my eyes set on possibly running Boston one day. Got to do that uh, three or four times, and then I guess I just the, the group of friends I was training with, they started to lean more into triathlon and ultra. I had a small stint doing triathlons, did one Olympic distance, and just about drowned in the swimming <laughs> and said, I'm pretty much done with that because I'm a terrible swimmer. <laughs> so instead of you know trying to pursue that, I figured I'm better at running. So I'll just throw all my uh, focus into doing that. And uh, just by chance, having to run 150K, uh, the Calico 50K, and uh, did fairly well. I ended up placing second. So that's was kind of the birthplace of me chasing longer distances. So, Right, right. So how long were you running before you started moving into the ultra scene? I'd say probably three or four years, mm-hmm. maybe five. I think my first ultra was 2015. Okay. So yeah, I'd been doing it for a while. I really was kind of getting burned out on marathon training. Um, yep. I have a 242 PR in the marathon and I, I just never thought I was going to get too much faster than that. And I was never going to 
you know, win a race. You right. know? So it was just like, I, I, I'm better at going further than going faster. So yeah, marathon training, right. You, you, it gets to that point of, I feel like diminishing returns, you know, pretty quickly or not necessarily quickly, but you, yeah, you get to that point where it's just like, you know, you're pounding on all these miles on the roads and you're doing all these, you know, hard workouts and you're seeing these marginal gains and there's just so much that you can do. And, the, you know, the other thing with marathons that I found after a while was, you know, you put so much into, like you said, Boston or something like that. Like you really only have, you know, two or, or three shots a year, at which you're really going to be able to run it well. Um, and, you know, I, there were a couple of races where I went to Chicago and I was like really in great shape and I thought I was going to run a real big PR. And I had two years in a row, one where it was like 20 degrees in snow and the next year it was like 88 degrees in humid. And it's just, you know, either way, you're kind of screwed and, and you've just put, you know, six months of training into it and you, you get nothing out of it because the force is out of your control. So it, it, right. it got really frustrating for me that way. Yeah, I mean, I always loved going out to Boston and running Boston's a phenomenal race, but you know, I, I live in Southern California and to fly all the way out to Boston, it, you know, it's not a cheap trip to go out there. You right. know? It's almost four or five days off work and just the amount of money looking back on it that I was paying to do that, I could run several ultras <laughs> <laughs> for the same price almost and, you know, run more miles and just, yeah, made yeah. more sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, uh, so you, it sounds like you had a fairly, I guess I'd say normal progression from, you know, road racing and marathoning up to the ultras. But, um, you know, you first came onto my radar, I think in 2018. So you'd already been in the ultra scene for a few years. And looking back at your results, I think you were a, you know, you were a strong local regional uh, runner at kind of the 50K, 50 mile distance for a couple of years. But 2018 was a real breakthrough year um, and which you basically went from being, a, you know, a good, solid, like I say, regional runner to kind of a force at the, you know, 100 mile and 24 hour distance. What happened that year that all of a sudden you became kind of a, a stud for lack of a better uh, term. Uh, I think the biggest thing looking back on it was just the consistency of my running. Um, I would do, it was just spotty training and it, it got to the point where I started to luckily be able to run every single day because of my job and uh, the kids were a little bit older. So I had a little bit more free time to mm -hmm. be able to do those, you know, long, longer runs on the weekends and getting up in the mountains and training on trail a lot more. Um, I, I did change my diet a little bit. We kind of cleaned it up some. I went down the keto, you know, <laughs> rabbit hole a little bit for a while. And mm -hmm. since then have, you know, adjusted things to fit, you know, our lifestyle a little bit better. But I think those two main things, the consistency and just uh, getting rid of some of the junk food and cleaning up the diet a little bit uh, changed a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, I, I know you drive for UPS. Is that right? Yeah, I'm a truck driver. Right. So were you doing a lot of um, longer trips before then when made the training uh, less consistent? Was it a, a just a work timing issue? Um, well, before I, you know, I, you started delivering the packages and that ate up a lot of time. And then once I got into driving the bigger trucks, um, I was doing mostly local stuff around here, you know, never going you know, further than maybe 50, 100 miles, you know, never. I think I did one like cross, you know, Arizona to San Francisco and back. I, I never really enjoyed those long trips. So right. it just made uh, scheduling a lot better because I knew pretty much when I was going to be starting every day and getting off every day. So that just, you know, I, I'm a creature of habit mm -hmm. and just being able to, you know, figure out those time slots with 
my wife's running too. She's a, you know, ultra runner and she tries to get in running as much as possible. And then of course our kids and it just made things a lot easier once I got into a more of a steady, uh, schedule, I guess. Right. But what that means for you, I think following on social media is a lot of real early morning runs, right? Yeah. Uh, I start work at 10 o'clock, so I am usually up around four 30 in the morning. Uh, just getting the miles in. I, <laughs> I usually have about a two hour window to get my workouts in and, you know, the strength training and core and all that. And then it's, back to uh, normal life of being a truck driver and a dad and <laughs> husband. So, And how old are your kids? I have a 17, 15, and 11-year-old. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, you're you're right in the thick of it. Right. <laughs> and now they're <laughs> home, and, you know, luckily my wife doesn't have to work, so she's hands-on with them most of the time when I'm gone. So, yeah. Right, right. So um, tell us about a uh, kind of a typical week for you training-wise. Um. Yeah, it usually, you know, depends on, you know, if I'm training for something, obviously. Um, I wouldn't say this is a typical week because I'm on vacation, but mm -hmm. usually uh, my coach, I'm being coached by Patrick Reagan right now. I've been working with him since December of last year. Um, so we've been working together for a while and he'll uh, send out my weekly workouts, usually Sunday nights. Um, typical days, you know, just waking up 4.30. Uh, I usually have about an hour and a half to two hour uh, run scheduled, whatever whatever he has, you know, working on for me that day. Um, come home, uh, eat, get cleaned up. I'll usually take about a half an hour. I, I call them my boot naps where I'll lay down in the c compression boots and most times I'll fall asleep because I'm, you know, <laughs> just trying to catch up on sleep as it is. Uh, get up, uh, get everything ready for work and work 10 hour day, come home, get to see the wife and kids for a little bit and start all over again the next day. So, <laughs> um, how much are you doing in terms of uh, specific speed work, hill work, or what we would call, or maybe in the ultra world, some more high intensity stuff? He usually has me doing one quality session a week. Um, before when I was training mostly, um, earlier in the year when I was training for the, um, hundred mile, uh, road championship, we were doing obviously a little bit more to get my leg turnover better. Mm -hmm. uh, I usually do one quality workout, usually on Wednesday, Wednesdays, where I have me do you know the typical like 400s, mile mm -hmm. repeats, those kind of things. Uh, then we'll do usually two or three. Um, I wouldn't say they were really tempo runs because I'm not pushing that hard, but they're you know steady state efforts with strides at the end. Mm -hmm. That's usually a typical thing. A uh, big long run on either Saturday and Sunday, and the rest are usually just uh, typical, you know, easy effort mm -hmm. recovery runs. So, mm -hmm. yeah, cool. I'm not, uh, you know, when I was training for more mountainous races, obviously I was. He was having me do a lot more hill work, um, but this year's pretty much been focused on just getting fast on the on the flat stuff just to get me ready for like i said 100 mile world uh or the championships in february and then the series of races that kept getting canceled throughout the year <laughs> because of covid and then now getting ready for desert so mostly the, i've been focusing on the flat roads right right so just to go back a little bit to 2018 where like i said it was kind of your break breakthrough year um i mean at that point you 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 know you started the year off i think at Coldwater. Um, and you went from being like a, you know, 19 to 20 hour, hundred mile guy to like a 15 hour, hundred mile guy, pretty much all of a sudden. And I, I think I first heard of you that year, I think, was that the first year you won uh, nanny goat and went in the mid one thirties for 24 hours? Yeah. Same year. Yes. Yeah. And, um, 
And by late that year, you were a member of the world championship team. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's kind of crazy how that whole year panned out. Um, running Nanny Goat, that first 24-hour race was basically just the race is held uh, about 15 miles away from our house. So it was super convenient. Um, I didn't have anything else going on. And it was just like, well, let's see what I can do for 24 hours. And yeah, it was a strange race too, because I had ran pretty consistently uh, up to the hundred mile. I think I, I think I finished hundred miles in about 14, just over 14 hours. Wow. And then I literally walked the last like 33, 34 <laughs> hours. Like I, for whatever reason, I was just like, I'm done. I'm, you know, I did a fast hundred miles, so I'm going to walk. And I didn't even know, I didn't know anything about qualifying for desert solstice, any of that stuff. So when I had finished that race, everybody was like, oh, you qualified to run this crazy race on a track in Phoenix in December. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll go do that next. Did you know going into Nanny Goat that you had like a 14 hour or low 14 hour hundred in you? No, I had no idea. Okay. Um, I had never run anything that was that flat. Mm -hmm. um, most of my races were up in the mountains. And, you know, I enjoy running in the mountains, but I don't think that's my specialty. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't get to spend enough time, you know, running uphill. And I've always been much more of a pace kind of mindset. Mm -hmm. And I think that came a lot from marathon training, stuff like that. So I've, I've always been better on the the flat services. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, tell us a little bit about Desert Solstice that year. I read a, um, a post that you had up on, uh, I think the Training for Adventure blog about uh, kind of your your battle with imposter syndrome when you got there. <laughs> um, tell, tell us what that was like the first time you were at Desert Solstice. Yeah, it, it was really strange because that was the first race um, that I'd be racing like legit professional runners. Right. Um, you know, I had done AC 100 and there were some, you know, top level runners there, but just, I had registered early after knowing that I could qualify for desert. And so over the next, I don't know, five or six months, it was starting to get a little bit intimidating <laughs> seeing all these top level runners, their names popping up on the interest list. And about a month before, you know, you're seeing names like Zach Bitter and, you know, my coach Patrick mm -hmm. and. Camille and mm -hmm. then Courtney mm -hmm. and just all these people that you're like, how am I even going to stand a chance against these people? And after doing a lot of soul searching and talking with my wife, it, it just got to the point where it's like, you got to run this thing. Basically don't even care about them. Just go out there and, and try to do the best that you can do, you know, have the best day that you can have. And, one thing that I've learned over the years with ultras is that you never know what's going to happen out there. The races are so long mm -hmm. that anything could happen to these pros and you may just have a great day. Just, you can't let that stuff get to you when you're, you're standing there neck on the line and you're just like, wow, half of these people I'm like fanboying right now. Cause they're my idols. So <laughs> yeah, it was just kind of a mind shift that I had to make going into that race. Just, do what you can do and see what happens. Right. Just focus on yourself, basically. Right. Was that hard once the race started? Because that race went out incredibly hard. I mean, you had uh, Camille, as you said, who uh, set the first of her 24-hour world records at that race, uh, who was out very, very hard, as was Zach. Zach was, uh, I think, right with her, basically. Patrick, not far behind. And the first, you know, I would say 12 hours of that race were 
I mean, it had to be amazing watching them, you know, kind of run away with things. Did you know that people were coming back or did it not even really enter your mind and you just just focused on you? Yeah, I, I don't know if I really noticed it until I think Courtney was having some problems. Right. And I saw that, she, you know, she was starting to slow down. And it, the further it got into the race, I started seeing people walking a lot more, you know, Legends like Bob Hearn, he he sets out walking in the very beginning. And I'm sure. thinking, what is this guy doing over here? I didn't know anything about Bob, about you know his strategy. And I was like, geez, this guy's walking already. Should I be doing that too? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like totally averted to that 24 hour scene. And yeah, you know, after I guess it was around 12, 13, 14 hours, I started seeing these top guys really suffer. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I started to think, well most of these guys have never run further than maybe 16 hours. Right. I have at least done it once. You know, I at least had that, you know, I had run another hundred mile where it was 25, 26 hours. So I at least had the experience that way. Mm -hmm. And it just got to the point where I started catching people. And there was that one point towards the end of the race where Camille started having problems and she was not running as much. And I was starting to think, well, wait a second, I'm starting to catch her too. Like what's going on here? And I mean, I was having my own, you know, struggles as well. And, you know, once the sun came up and it just seemed like the race, it was a totally different race. You had uh, Nick Curry speeding around, mm -hmm. flying past me and uh, Greg Armstrong, you know, those guys were battling. And I was basically, when I went into that race, I, I said my goal was 150 miles. And which was probably a big mistake because I had reached that in somewhere around the, you know, 22 hour mark. And I almost said, well, I reached my goal. So now I'm going to slow down myself where <laughs> I probably could have pushed even harder. And that's, you know, one of those rookie mistakes. You, you never want to set your, your goals too low. Right. In these time Cause once you hit it, you tend to, you know, back off. So, right. Yeah. I mean, at, I had no idea, you know, that I was going to set an age group record. I had no idea that I would qualify for the world's team. It was just completely, I was just so much of a rookie. I had no idea. <laughs> the The race for the spots on the team that day was very intense uh, between Nick and, and Greg and Bob, as you said. And yeah, I mean, it's funny when you see Bob kind of, uh, you know, employing that strategy right away, because he's like, you know, he's the smartest guy out there. And, and it's yeah. just like, <laughs> what does he know that I don't know? But, you know, the other thing, too, when you see Bob walk, Bob doesn't walk like a regular person oh, walks. No. Bob walks oh, as no. like, at like, that's like my easy run pace. So right. that's a little yeah. bit different. <laughs> Phil, it is time for us to talk about toothpaste. This episode of the Pain Cave podcast is sponsored by Himalaya Botanique Toothpaste. Phil, have you ever had an experience with natural toothpaste where you just feel like your teeth aren't getting clean? Well, yes, I certainly have. I'm English. I'm very aware of that feeling. <laughs> I guess for you that, that feeling comes with any kind of toothpaste. Yeah, it's certainly <laughs> certainly something we have a rich heritage of. <laughs> uh, I've definitely had the experience with, you know, trying a natural toothpaste where it just it's like brushing with chalk where it just feels really like dusty and and I don't know my teeth feel just as dirty after I use it than uh, they did beforehand but not with uh, Himalaya Botanique toothpaste which uh, we were lucky enough to get to try a few samples of it has the same texture and feel and flavor of a regular toothpaste but without 
all the nasty other additives that we try to avoid. Yep, I scrubbed up my pearly whites with it yesterday evening and this morning, and they felt rather, rather nice, actually, I have to say. I can't wait to go for a run with you later today and see how sparkling white your teeth are. Yep, I'll show you from the six-foot distance, but you'll certainly be careful not to catch the sun, sun rays bouncing off them. I'll wear my sunglasses so I don't get blinded by the reflection. Sounds like a very good idea. I like the way that you err on the side of caution. Himalaya Botanique is our sponsor for today's episode. This is a toothpaste that is free from fluoride, SLS, and artificial colors and flavors, but unlike other similar toothpaste, it does not compromise on flavor or performance. Himalaya toothpaste is always bursting with foam and flavor. I would agree with all those statements. How about you? I certainly would, yeah. It was very good. (laughs) Uh, If you're interested in trying it for yourself, you can now get 20% off Himalaya Botanique toothpaste on Amazon with the discount code paincave20. Check out the show notes for more details on this episode's sponsorship with Himalaya Botanique. And thank you so much for your support. So yeah, you you ran, you, you made the world team. And uh, I mean, I think that was probably the the point at which everyone kind of sat up and took notice. Did 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 it feel different after that? I mean, that, to have a breakthrough performance like that, and on on such a big stage where there was a good bit of coverage, and you knew, I mean, at that point you weren't assured of a spot on the world team, but it was pretty solid and it did hold up. Um, you know, it, it seems funny to say, did your life change? But did 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 your perception of yourself change? Did you feel other people's perception of you in the sport change? How, how was it different after those 150 some miles? Yeah, it's something I've been battling with pretty much since then is, I guess, the things that I had set up in my mind, like I'm going to do this, I'm going to achieve this goal and things are going to change. Not much has changed. <laughs> <laughs> I think I built up, you know, so much in my mind that and that's been something that i've dealing been dealing with that uh even going into worlds i was thinking maybe that was a one one time fluke race that i did <laughs> you know i had to convince myself once again like you're not there to prove yourself to the world you need to prove to yourself that you are capable of almost repeating that you know mm-hmm. uh, effort that i had at desert solstice um yeah, it's kind of weird. You, you think, oh, you you win a race or do well at a race and these companies are going to come banging at your door to, you know, right. with the truck full of money given you. But that's just really not the reality <laughs> of things. And it's once again me being naive about how, you know, the sport works. And, you know, a lot of it ties into your social media presence. And, you know, it's a tough pill to swallow when you do really well at a race like that. And then, Monday morning you get up and you put your brown uniform on and you go to work and nobody has any clue what you just did the weekend before. So <laughs> it's a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. So 2019 became the world's year for you. You went to, um, I think you went to jackpot that winter, right? For hundred mile road championships. And right. you had a good solid race there running in the 15 hour range. Um, but you know, I think slower than you had split the 24 hours at, um, at Desert Solstice, and and I think Mark Hammond won the first of two titles that year, and you know was a, was a good bit out in front of you, and I think you had been out a little harder and faded a little bit. Was that a kind of a bitter pill at that point, uh, going in with high expectations and and not quite reaching? Yeah, it definitely was. I think um, 
you know, I'd ran worlds in October and then that January, I believe I was, uh, I ran Avalon 50 and it was supposed to be basically a training race. And from the start I was running up front and it turned into a race <laughs> instead of a training race for me. <laughs> so I kind of, I, I, I had some hamstrings issues after that race. And then I was feeling good for, uh, the race in February, uh, and yeah, I just didn't have a good day. I probably went out a little bit harder than I should have. Um, still was a great, you know, learning experience. Uh, I've never, I'd never run, you know, anything like that. A loop course uh, flat, you know, going after some fast time. So yeah, it was a bit of a little bitter pill to swallow after that. And still proud of my uh, finish. So yeah. Did that, did that shake your confidence going into worlds at all? No, um, not so much. No, I, okay. I, I kind of just, yeah, I, I didn't really think too much after it. Okay. Um, Good. I still had plenty of time to train. And, right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if, if, uh, desert solstice in 18 was your big breakthrough, I think world was the kind of arrival on, on the world stage. So to so to speak, tell us right. about that experience there. Um, you know, not only being a part of the gold medal winning team, uh, but also being top 10, overall uh individually and uh i mean just the experience overall yeah that experience was probably the highlight so far of my running career and just my life really i mean i had always been a big fan of watching the olympics and to be able to hold you know be represent your country like that for something you love to do is is just an amazing feeling and i i know how many people had tried so hard to make that team that year before and to be one of the ones that got picked to do that, it was just, it was really surreal. <laughs> yeah. I, it, it's hard to, I look back at it and I still get emotional about just standing on that podium after the race was over and knowing that uh, I had pushed myself harder than I had ever pushed. And to be the second scoring member on the team was just, it was just unbelievable. Um, how was your training four worlds different, if at all, from what you had done going into Desert Solstice the year before? Um, it was a lot more uh, just flat uh, pace-based workouts. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to run the Jackrabbit Jubilee, which mm -hmm. is one of Aero Viper races, um, about a month before, I believe. I did uh, the 12-hour there, had a really good experience there, ran really well in the heat. After that race, I think that was a big boost, boost of confidence that, you know, my body's ready to go as hard as I wanted it to go. So mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, looking back even from what I'm doing now to building up for Worlds is completely different. I mean, I, I'm running more miles now, faster. So I think that's a good sign that if I'm hitting benchmarks, you know, surpassing what I was doing before Worlds, I'm really excited to go and see what happens at Desert this yeah. year. Yeah, for sure. Tell us a little bit about the race at Worlds itself, because similar to Desert Solstice in, in 18, that race went out super fast, and you were not in a top 10 overall position by any stretch for the first several hours. Um, again, uh, you know, it, it seemed like you focused basically on your own race and what you could control and let the chips fall where they would. And you and Harvey together moved up throughout the day. And I think, you know, Olivier obviously had a, a great day, but you and Harvey moving up through, I mean, Olivier was up front all day. The two of you moving up through the field is what really secured, I think, the gold for the team. Um, 
was that difficult again, kind of not to get caught up in the racing up front early? Or, I mean, is that kind of, are you just used to that now being able to compartmentalize and focus on what you need to do specifically? Yeah, I think with, with the 24 hour races, you know, you're going to have the groups that go out way too fast. You know, it's inevitable at every race, you know, there's going to be a group that goes out too hard. And I think it was just a little bit of, you know, I'd run two 24 hour races up into that point. Well, actually three, because I ran Nanny Goat again the year after. I think it was just a little bit more experience, trying to be a little bit more patient. And I was actually the uh, first male for, I would say, 16 hours, 17 hours. And then Olivier was always about a mile behind me. Okay. And he ended up catching me. Um, and I think it was just, uh, you know, every every race you, you you learn a little bit more, you're a little bit more patient, you know what you're capable of. And, you know, I learned a ton from that race. I, I blew up after 20 hours. I struggled mm-hmm. those last four hours and walked a whole lot more. Um, and I learned a lot from watching how Olivier races. He's just a beast, you know, and that's yeah. something, you know, he's at his age to be able to click off those miles and almost negative split that race was just unbelievable. And I learned a lot from that. So, I, you know, it was once again, just a learning experience. You know, you're running with the best in the world at that time. And, um, yeah, I mean, you, there was one, there was one point during the race that I will never forget. Uh, it was starting to get into the evening and Harvey was there. Uh, uh, Rich Raupel was there and Olivier. And there was a, pack of four of us and we were just charging it was like <laughs> me me and olivia in the front and and rich and harvey like right behind us and we were it was amazing running through that the one mile loop and all the the, the fans were cheering usa usa because they saw us <laughs> and we were on a mission and it was just unbelievable to be able to like spend those couple miles as a group like that and just you know we, we knew that the japan team was going to be really strong and they started to fade and we just started catching people and, and catching the team. So it was just, yeah, I, I will never forget that moment. That's awesome. What is your general approach to a 24 hour in terms of pacing strategy? I know some people, Bob, especially we talked about is, you know, just an even paced machine. And, and some people are more like, I just want to bank miles early. And, uh, you know, how do you generally try to approach it? I've always typically been uh, the one that likes to bank miles mm-hmm. um I, I, it's funny because i think i've even read a couple of posts from bob saying that maybe he needs to rethink his strategy <laughs> <laughs> because he sees so many of us going out you know harder than what he thinks is necessary um i i would say that going into desert this year i'm going to be a lot more conservative and i would like to have that olivier just nice smooth line with mm-hmm. no spikes um at worlds i had ran like physically ran longer than i'd ever run before before having to take walk breaks. So I, I, I want to try to extend that even further mm-hmm. um, in my future 24-hour races. Um, yeah, I think it's just being patient. Um, those, those first like six miles should almost feel uncomfortable running slower than what you think you should run. Right. And that's something that I had mentally like struggled with. I mean, there's even some of my long training weekends where I'm, running I, I feel fine but i'll look at my pace on my watch and be like uh maybe you should just be running like maybe even 15 seconds slower than this it might feel like you're you know a snail but to be able to hold that for so long mm-hmm. i think is what's key to running 24-hour races right 
Right. Tell us a little bit. You had um, you had spoken a little bit about changes you made to your diet that kind of helped to propel you forward a little bit. And you said you were uh, kind of a keto, um, or at least had attempted the keto kind of life. Um, are you still doing that? What is your kind of nutritional approach at this point, other than avoiding yeah. garbage? Yeah, I mean, I, I I'll be the first to say I'm not a saint when it comes to eating. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like my son just had his 17 birthday a couple days ago and my wife we got a big cake and i ate a big piece of cake and you know i love donuts you know mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> uh yeah i mean I, I think i'm pretty strict on staying away from the the vegetable oils mm-hmm. i i do i i don't eat ma- many grains besides maybe tortillas with burritos or something like that mm-hmm. i think uh you know i when i'm in full-on training mode i try to stay away from the sugary stuff as mm-hmm. much as i can but the funny thing is, is that when you're running this many miles, your body just burns through that stuff anyways. So right. I think it, it, it really depends on more on when you're not doing that kind of training or you're, you, I try to be a little bit more strict on what I'm eating, mm-hmm. you know, and I've, I've tried everything. I've, I've tried going, you know, doing the carnivore diet for a week and didn't really feel that great doing that. I've gone trying to eat, you know, more veggies and staying away from the meat. And I didn't feel all that great. So, you know, it's so individual when it comes to diet. And it's really about just not being afraid to try different things and seeing what works best for you. Right. Really. So. Right. So you said you started working with Patrick this past December? Yeah. So that's interesting that you you came out of really the highlight of your career. I mean, the best kind of two years of your career and, and just coming off of a top 10 at Worlds and you know, running in the mid 160s, putting you among the best U.S. 24-hour runners ever. Um, that you decided that you needed something else and started working with a coach. Is that the first time you had worked with a coach before? I had worked uh, with a coach uh, for one of my buildups to run Boston, where I set my PR there, and I worked with him for about a month. But he was more of a you know marathon type, mm-hmm. kind of a cookie cutter kind of approach, where it's just he has a list of workouts that he gives you over those four months and that was it. Mm-hmm. And I think after working, uh, you know, running worlds, I kind of got to the point where I was thinking, you know, I don't think I can get any better on my own. Basically. Mm-hmm. I need somebody with a lot more experience. And, uh, I had met Patrick at the Haviland hundred year that he won the hundred and I had won the hundred K. Mm-hmm. Um, we met up afterwards and I knew, you know, his background with running more, you know, being a kind of a specialized, uh, flat race, you know, he's not big into running, you know, the big, these big, huge mountainous races just right. because of where he lives. I thought it was a perfect fit. And, you know, after worlds, I reached out to him and he was like super excited to work with somebody that's doing what I'm doing because he'd never coached somebody like that. And then after meeting him at desert and him seeing, you know, what happened there, I think it was just a perfect fit. And he's been, you know, way more than a coach. He's been just a mentor and a really great friend. And we bounce ideas off of each other all the time. And he helps me with, uh, you know, the pro aspect of running. And, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, it's just been a really great, uh, like match made in heaven, I guess, for, for me. I've, I think I've progressed so much over this past year. That's awesome. That's awesome. What's the kind of the biggest, um, change or the biggest difference in your training that you've been doing with Patrick versus what you were doing beforehand? I think most of it's just, uh, accountability. Um, right. You know, just having that training. I don't, I, before 
training for worlds is basically I'd wake up and, and say, how do I feel? I get, you know, three or four miles. Well, I feel pretty good. So maybe I'll run faster today where now I can prepare myself the night before, see exactly what I need to do. And it's just so much less stressful that mm-hmm. way. Just, you know, and he, he, a lot of the workouts he writes, he's kind of guessing on like, what's good for a 24 hour racer compared to a hundred mile racer. You, right. know, you need the leg speed, you need to build that stuff in. So we're both kind of, learning from each other in those regards to see what works best. And I, I, I'm sure that when he takes his, you know, crack at another 24 hour race, he's going to be looking at what maybe worked well for me in that buildup. Right. So, you know, it's going both ways, which I think is awesome. And I just think, you know, just having that less stress of worrying about what I'm doing the next day just makes things so much easier for me. And it's obviously paying off because I feel like I'm just, in some such better shape this year. So, yeah. Yeah. And you've, you've had a, a, you know, a great year in a year that's been obviously unlike anything we've ever experienced before. Um, but you, you've already had some great performances. You had a really great run to start the year at, at, um, jackpot again. Um, was that your hundred mile PR? That was, yeah, that was about 1330, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, already starting the year with that, and then you've had a couple other wins since then, and now getting ready for Desert Solstice. What, how's the buildup going at this point? And, you know, what are you looking forward to in really just about six weeks' time? It's been going really well. Um, I've been hitting pretty much all my workouts. Haven't had, uh, you know, the biggest problem is not getting injured. You know, I haven't had any uh, really bad soreness or, you know, niggles at all. So everything has been, you know, he's been building me up you know, just like you should, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, this will probably be my biggest week. And it, a lot of that is because I'm off work. So I have a little bit more downtime to recover, but we have about two more weeks of big mileage weeks. And we're both mostly just working on volume right now. He's been throwing in uh, like that one quality session during the week where it's not super strenuous, but it's enough to where it's giving me a little bit of a break of just, just go out and run 10 miles at a certain pace. You know, I, I like having that variety thrown in there with my workouts. So right. yeah, I mean, uh, knock on wood, I make it through these next couple of weeks and then we, we start the long taper. So, and I mean, I, I'm really excited to get back out of desert. Uh, you know, I was out there last year, uh, crewing Marissa Lysak, who was the overall winner. And I'll be the first to say that I was a little bit jealous that I wasn't out there running with them too, you know, but just wasn't in the cards that close after desert. But yeah, it's, I'm drawing on a lot of that, that those feel good vibes from being out there last year. And I'm really excited that we're actually might actually get to have a a legit race at the end of the year. So yeah. I think that's the biggest thing is just being able to run an actual race this year at this point. Sure. And just being able to see people (laughs) and be back in the scene. will be, that'll be something special. Yeah. Uh, assuming Worlds goes off uh, in the spring, which it's you know scheduled to right now at least, uh, you should be on the team again, regardless of what happens at Desert Solstice. Uh, will you be assume again, assuming that we're sending a team? Uh, I, w- will you take a spot if offered? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I may not have you know been going back and forth with the wife and bringing the kids out there to Romania, and she's not as you know. I don't know about COVID and you sure. know, having the kids go out there. So it may be a, a solo trip for me, but yeah, I will, I'm definitely never going to pass up on a trip to, you know, represent the country and, yeah. you know, there's just no way. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, you know, again, the, the number that you have out there 
for the qualification window from Worlds last year. I don't see you being knocked off at this point, regardless of what happens at Solstice. I mean, barring some sort of miracle. Yeah, it would it would take, I mean, four people <laughs> running over one sixty five. So right, that's not very likely. Seems, seems <laughs> unlikely. I'm, I, I'm definitely not going to give up that spot. So if it's close and it's coming down the wire, <laughs> I, I'm definitely not going to be like, oh, I made the team anyway. So. I, I would like to. They're going you know, to have to go through you first, is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. You did have, I mean, like, as, as you were implying at this point, you're kind of a flat track road specialist to, to some extent at this point, but you, you do have a good bit of experience on the trails. Tell us about some of your favorite trail races because you've run some real classics and, and races that I'd really love to try myself one day, including Javelina. You've been podium at Angeles Crest, I think you've run Kodiak, which has always kind of intrigued me. Um, what, are, what are some of your favorite trail races? Um, you know, you'd mentioned Coldwater and those are kind of the, the mom and pop races, Havelina and Coldwater. Um, I actually like Coldwater a little bit better. It's, you know, it's a looped five loops mm -hmm. and, but I think you get a little bit better variety of terrain and, and scenery. And I think that's one of those, uh, it's in a, since it's in January, it's kind of in a weird time of year for people to race, but I think that's that's one that people should uh, check out a lot more. Cool. Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful out there. Um, yeah, uh, Kodiak is literally like an hour away from my house, and I would definitely like to go back and have a much better race, you know, sometime. I guess the, the big goal right now is just getting into Western for me. I, yeah. <laughs> you know, I have that's another thing I have on my list for next year is getting that qualifying race in since it got – postponed and sure. then canceled this year so yeah i mean i it's just so hard for me to put that much time into training to do well in a mountain race when right now i'm excelling at doing right you know i, I have my eyes on doing a 48 hour race for sure next year mm -hmm. so yeah where would that be you thinking about uh six days of the dome or something like that yeah that that's definitely a possibility um yeah that it's so hard to plan right now. You sure. Know? Yeah. No, you just don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, like you just ran three days at the fair. I'd love to go out and run that race sometime. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So it's, I, it's hard to make plans at this point. You know, I'm like yeah. fingers crossed right now that that world's next year happen. I guess that's the main priority at this point. Right. Right. But Western is a definite bucket list for you as well. Oh yeah. 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 That that's one that, you know, you got to at least do it once and, for most people, it will be only one. So, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> what about Biggs? Any any uh, attraction to the backyard format? Yeah, you know, people keep asking me about that after I did the um, that Lone Mountain thing that Eric mm -hmm. Weiba did. Yep. Which, yeah, I definitely it definitely interests me. Um, I I liked the format of the the Eric Weiba one a little bit better. It was uh, one mile every fifteen minutes. Right. I like that. A little bit more um, because just because of you, you don't you're not sitting around as long right um, I had done what was the one that they did in like March or May the first virtual the gigs. first quarantine one the one that Dave yeah, Proctor put quarantine. on yeah yeah right I had participated in that and it just seemed like that that 10 15 minutes in between each lap was mm -hmm. just it ate out at me a little bit too much. You know, I, I don't right. like to stop, you know, right, right, right. but I would, I would definitely, yeah, I would like to do big someday. That would be fun. Yeah. Doing, doing something in person, of course, is going to be a whole better experience. For sure. For sure. 
Uh, Jake, we're almost out of time here, but before I let you go, we have to play uh, the dumb game that I play with all my guests. We're going to do <laughs> Desert Island Picks, okay? I'm going to send you right. to a desert island for a year, and you get to bring one book, one album, one food, and one beer to a desert island. So what are you going to bring? Okay. So the book, you know, I was I was actually thinking about these questions this morning. I was listening to an old podcast of you and uh, Pete Kosselnick, and I was thinking, oh, sure. what am I going to say? So <laughs> I think uh, I'm going to go with what Pete said, uh, Born to Run. I think, you know, that's just a great book. Great and book. Maybe, I mean, I'm not very religious, but I never read the Bible, and maybe that would be something <laughs> that would kill a lot of time trying to work on that one. So, I'll, but I'll go with Born to Run. Okay, great. One album? Um, album. This was a tough one for me. Um, I'm a big like punk rock fan. Oh, nice. I'm also a big metal fan. Okay. And you can give me it, one punk and one metal if that's easier. Okay. Okay. Well, the the metal one, I, you know, I'm a big Metallica fan. I always have been. Okay. And to think of one album, um, they're all great albums. But I was thinking the one that that always inspired me the most is the uh, the first uh, orchestra one, the S and M. I know they just released another one, but I think that first uh, one where they played with the San Francisco Orchestra. Cool. You know, covers a lot of songs and, you know. It's a different sound. Different variations on some of those yeah, songs. Yeah, that's so, cool. Right. Okay. So, and punk, punk-wise, uh, probably, I don't know, one of the early Rancid albums maybe. Um, maybe the, the, the self, self-titled self one. Okay. Yeah, a big fan of Rancid, so. All right, cool. One food. One food. Probably burritos, some some form of burritos. Yeah, <laughs> I love, Southern, Ca- I love Southern California, burritos. Southern California. Yeah. That's uh, that's your go-to, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've ever eaten at Miguel's Junior. That's kind of like what I grew up with, uh, living in Fontana. That's close to where they originated. So we, we love going to Miguel's. Awesome. Eating rice and cheese burritos. Awesome. One beer. One beer. This is a tough one because I don't I don't drink you know too often. Okay. Um, I've always been a fan of Newcastle. Oh, nice. Uh, something dark. I, I love the the darker stuff. So, yeah, Newcastle probably. Awesome. Awesome. Jake, thanks so much for doing this. This was really fun. Cool, man. Yeah, and and good luck at uh, good luck at Solstice. It'll be really fun to follow along. And, uh, you know, fingers crossed for Worlds next year. Hopefully it comes off. And if not, uh, maybe I'll get a chance to see you on the trail somewhere. Definitely. I'll be uh, excited to run into you sometime. Awesome. Everybody out there, thanks for listening, and until next time in the pain cave, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Broken down and beaten up, the years have been long and tough, but I'm not dead. Happy now just to spend some time with friends and have a roof above my head. I'm not jaded, just been faded, like a good old pair of jeans. Rusted like a proud old car that's drove a little too far and seen too much rain. But long ago, as a child, I look about the night sky in wild wonderment. And ride the bus, feel upset.